You're listening to an audio sermon from Hope Bible Church in Oakville, Ontario. For more information, please visit our website at hopeoakville.ca. Good morning, Hope. Good morning. Good morning. Got your Bibles there. Please go ahead and open them up if you haven't already to Acts chapter 4. And we're going to jump right in today by looking at verse 33. Because we can't really understand what's happening in our text today unless we first start at verse 33. So let's have a look at verse 33 up on the screen. Notice this. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Great grace was upon them all. That word great there, it means mega. Mega grace was upon them all, as in the whole church. And that word grace there means the undeserved favor of God. So the mega undeserved favor of God was upon the entire church, which means this, that the mega blessing and favor of God was poured out upon those who only deserve his wrath. And who is it that deserves his wrath? Well, Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 1.18 says that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. In other words, all of us here have sinned against God. All of us, thousands of that, millions of times. Therefore, all of us deserve his judgment, and therefore, all of us deserve his wrath even right now. But here we are. Here we are, not experiencing his wrath. And why is that? One word. Grace. Grace. The undeserved favor of God. And his grace is upon us all, whether we know it or not, up on the screen. Because notice, he gives first common grace to all. He gives common grace to all. Luke 6.35, Jesus said he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. For the first 26 years of my life, I was an atheist. I wanted nothing to do with God. I suppressed the truth. And yet, and I didn't realize it, everything that I had had been given to me by God. Kind. He's been kind to me. But notice this also. He gives grace for salvation. Ephesians 2.8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, for it is the gift of God. I married into a Christian family, and my father-in-law is a pastor, and one day he gave me a book called Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. I had no intention of reading it. It sat on my night table for months, and then one night I couldn't sleep, and I saw it there, and I reached over, and I grabbed it, and I opened it up, and I started reading. And I got about halfway through the book, and... The Spirit of God moved upon me and scales fell off and, and I ended up on my bathroom floor at 3.30 in the morning giving my life to Jesus Christ. What's that called? Grace. Grace. I didn't believe and then I believed. God gave me faith and I believed and he saved me from my sins and from the wrath of God. God gives grace for salvation. He also gives this as well. He gives grace for strength. 1 Corinthians 15.10, Paul says this, he says, But by the grace of God I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Paul's saying, everything good that comes from me, it's not from me. 
It's from God. It's his grace. He said, I worked harder than all of them, but it wasn't me. It was the grace of God, the strength and the power of God in me, he says. He also gives grace for this. He gives grace so that we might endure suffering. 2 Corinthians 12, 9, Paul is telling us what God said to him. He says, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. At this point, Paul's talking about this thorn in the flesh. He says this, this, this uh, a servant of Satan that had been sent to him, and, and, and he was begging God, please take it away. He begs God, he pleads with him three times, please take it away. God says, no, but I will do this. I will give you the grace that you need to persevere through it. He gives grace for enduring suffering. Then ultimately this, he gives us himself because he is our grace. Titus 2.11 says, For the grace of God has appeared. He's appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And sometimes we have this idea of grace that kind of like God is over there and we're over here and we're like, hey God, I need some grace. And he's like, yeah, no problem, go long. And he throws the grace and then we receive the grace. We're like, thank you, God. But that's not it. See, God never gives us his grace apart from giving us himself. He personally is in us and he strengthens us by his grace. So here's what we need to see. That all we deserve is the wrath of God. And anything that we have that's not wrath is grace. It's all grace, so consider it. Food, water, clothing, shelter, family, friends, education, job, income, it's all grace. It's all grace. All thinking and feeling and breathing, hearts beating right now, organs functioning properly right now, it's all grace. All spiritual life in a believer, regeneration, salvation, justification, sanctification, glorification, it's all grace. All spiritual life, all love, and all joy, and all peace, and all patience, and all kindness, and goodness, and all faithfulness, and gentleness, and self-control, it is all grace. All wisdom, and knowledge, and insight, and strength, and power, it's all grace. All desire to obey God. All power to obey God. It's all 100% the grace of God poured out upon us moment by moment by moment. So apart from the grace of God, listen, there is no provision. There's no physical well-being. There's no life. There's no fruit. There's no wisdom, no godliness, no strength, and no power in our lives. Therefore, loved ones, our greatest need at all times is this. It's the grace of God. It's the grace of God. So question, if our greatest need at all times is the grace of God, are we living like it? Are we living like that is our greatest need? Are we longing for the grace of God? Are we pursuing the grace of God? Are we dependent? Are we desperate for the grace of God? Because our greatest need in our day and in our church and in our lives is this. It's for a great outpouring of God's grace. This is our greatest need. For a great outpouring of God's grace. Because when God pours out his great grace upon the church, here's what happens. This is point number one. You can jot this down. God's people love one another with radical generosity. When God pours out his great grace on his church, God's people love one another with radical generosity. Have a look now at verse 32. Acts chapter 4, verse 32. Notice. Now the full number of those who believed... 
were of one heart and soul. Notice it says the full number of those who believed. Who believed what? Well, who believed the gospel. Who believed the good news that the Jesus who was crucified and died is in fact the Son of God who died for the sins of his people and rose again to save his people from sin and death and the wrath of God. And how did he do that? Well, according to the sovereign plan of God, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, he took on flesh and he was born into this world humbly, into poverty 2,000 years ago. And when he was 30 years old, he began to preach, he began to teach about the kingdom of God. And he was hated by the religious leaders because he exposed them as the frauds and the hypocrites that they were. And so they conspired against him. And they planned how they might kill him by falsely accusing him of blasphemy, which was punishable by death. And in submission to the will of God, the creator of the universe, Jesus Christ, when they came to arrest him, he gave himself over to them. He allowed himself to be arrested and to be mocked and to be beaten and to be spit upon and to be tortured and then to be crucified. And as Jesus was nailed to that cross, he accomplished the purpose for which he came because all of the sin of everyone who would ever place their faith in him was then transferred to him on that cross. And the wrath of God for our sins was then poured out upon him in full. And he made complete payment for all of the sin of all who would ever place their faith in him through his immeasurable suffering on that cross. And when it was finished... He gave up his spirit, and he died, and he was buried. But on the third day, he rose again, victorious over sin and death. And then for 40 days, he appeared to his, to his apostles, and he ate with them, and he spoke with them, and then he ascended into heaven where he is right now, reigning and ruling at the right hand of the Father. And very soon, he will return again, this time as our conquering king, to judge the world and destroy his enemies and bring forth the new heavens and the new earth where he will dwell with his people forever and ever and ever. This is the gospel. This is the gospel. Do you believe the gospel? Because maybe you are here today and you know, you know that you've sinned against God. You know you've sinned against God thousands of times. And you know right even right now that it's true that the wrath of God is upon you. Romans 2.5 says, Because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of God's wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Listen, you are here right now and the spirit of God is moving in your heart and you, you know I've sinned against God and you know you don't know him. And the spirit of God is saying to you right now, listen, listen, God has made a way. His name is Jesus Christ. And if you will bow the knee to him, if you will surrender to him and declare him to be Lord and you will trust in him and put your faith in him and what he accomplished for you on that cross, then the Bible teaches that today is the day of your salvation. If you will believe in him, if you will believe the gospel today, you can leave here today saved in Jesus Christ. The early church believed the gospel. And look what happened, verse 32, notice. All who believed were of one heart and soul. 
meaning that as they believed the gospel, they were united in a beautiful way in the gospel, and they became one heart and soul, meaning that as God's mega grace was being poured out on the church, they were filled with the same spirit of God, and they shared the same faith in God, and they experienced the same awe of God and love for God, and because of that, they obeyed the will of God. And they loved one another with a radical love. And they became one heart and one soul. Imagine, imagine. Thousands and thousands and thousands of little pools of water on the ground. All separate from one another. Thousands of pools of water. And then then it gently starts to rain. And and the rain begins to fill each pool up. And it swells. It gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And then they slowly start to merge together. And then one by one, they all become one big body of water. Likewise, as God's mega grace, as it poured down upon the church, God's people, they merged together as one in love. And they became one heart and soul in a beautiful unity. Have a look at verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And notice this. No one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. Now how many of the people is this referring to? How many? All of them. The full number. So at this point we're probably talking somewhere in the range of like eight to 10,000 people with men, women, and children. And, and so consider it. No one in the church ever said that the things they owned were theirs. No one said that. And here's why. Because they understood that everything they have has come from God. It belongs to God. That he had entrusted them with these things, yes, to enjoy, but also to use to bless the church. So they stopped saying, mine. No one said that. They stopped saying, mine. They started saying, his. They started saying, here. To those who were in need. Look again at verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one ever said that the things that belonged to them were his own, but notice, they had all things in common. So to recap, thousands of people have come up to Jerusalem for Pentecost, and then the Apostle Peter, he gets up and he preaches the gospel, and 3,000 people are saved all at once, but it doesn't stop there. The gospel continues to be preached day after day, and more people are getting saved, more people are getting saved, more people are saved, until we're now up up and around 10,000 people, men, women, and children, all newly saved, all on fire for the Lord Jesus Christ. And listen, they're not going anywhere. I mean, imagine, imagine you are there, and you are there, and you get saved, and the mega grace of God is being poured out everywhere, and you're like, this is amazing. Do you think you're just gonna leave? There's no chance. But that creates a big problem because most of these people are from out of town. So they don't have the food that they need and they don't have the clothing that they need and they don't have the shelter that they need. And for the apostles, this might have felt a little bit like deja vu. Like that time when they had nothing and they had 5,000 people to care for. And then that other time when they had nothing and they had 4,000 people to care for. And like this time when they have nothing and then they got like 10,000 people to care for. But before they can even stress about it, God moves. 
and he pours out mega grace upon his people who live in and around Jerusalem. And those brand new Christians, they begin to show this radical generosity by sharing what they have with everyone who is in need. When they saw a need, they met the need. Like, you need some food? Here, eat this. You need some clothing? Here, take this. You need supplies? You need materials? Here, take it, take it. And why were they doing this? Here's why. Because great grace was upon them all, and it changed their hearts. Great grace was upon them all, and it changed their hearts, because now they have a new treasure. They have a better treasure and a more satisfying treasure than their possessions, because now God is their treasure, and his love for God swept through their hearts like a flood. It smashed down everything that would stand in the way of them loving one another. It came through and it smashed down strongholds of selfishness. And it came through and it smashed down strongholds of the idolatry of possessions. And they were liberated to release their possessions because their possessions are no longer their treasure. God is. And they were liberated to share their possessions because their hearts are now filled with love for God instead of love for possessions. And now we return back to where we started, to verse 33. Have a look at verse 33. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Now notice it says, with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony. And what does that word great mean again? It means mega, mega. And so, and so that word power there is, is where we get the English word for dynamite. So here's what this means. It means that because God is pouring out mega grace upon the apostles, they're preaching the resurrection of Jesus with mega Holy Spirit dynamite power. And through their preaching, thousands are hearing the gospel and thousands are believing the gospel and coming to Christ in repentance and faith. Now the fishing that I'm used to, the fishing that I'm used to is, is kind of like this. You cast and you reel and you cast and you reel and you cast and you reel, and it's like, oh. and you cast and you reel, and it's kind of fun, right? But, but maybe after an hour or so, you may catch something. Maybe, maybe, maybe. That's the fishing I'm used to. I love fishing. But if you go somewhere like Fort Hope, which is like 300 kilometers north of Thunder Bay, and you've got the right guide, and you've got the right day and the right time and the right place, then you can cast out, and you're going to catch a fish like every couple of minutes, and it's so exciting. You're like, I've never experienced anything like this before. Likewise, likewise, because the mega grace of God was being poured out on the apostles who were fishers of men, they began to preach with mega power and they were seeing mega salvation. Look again with me at verse 33. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony, notice, to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And so why are they preaching about the resurrection? Well, here's why. Because everything in the Christian faith ultimately hinges on the resurrection. At 1 Corinthians 15, Paul said, and if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile, and you're still in your sins. But then he says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. And the apostles, they're all eyewitnesses of this. They saw Jesus. They spoke with Jesus. They ate with Jesus after he rose from the dead. 
And so they're preaching their eyewitness testimony with mega power. So let's try to place ourselves in the text. Consider what it would have been like to actually be there. There you are. You're in the crowd. You're listening to the apostles preaching on the resurrection of Christ with mega power. And you're seeing people getting saved everywhere, literally by the thousands. Well, at the same time, you're watching this community of like 10,000 new Christians who are on fire loving the Lord and loving one another with a radical generosity that no one has ever seen before. So consider the impact of hearing the preaching of the apostles. And at the same time, you're seeing the generosity of God's people. These together would have so powerfully pointed to the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. To the reality that he is alive. And right now, he's pouring out grace on those apostles. That's why they're preaching with such power. And he's pouring out grace on his people. Which is why they're loving each other with this radical generosity. Because he is risen. He is alive, and he's pouring out grace through the Holy Spirit. And so question, does God still want his people to love one another with radical generosity in our day? Or is this kind of like um, an early church thing, and we sort of move past that now? Well, Jesus answers us in John chapter 13. Look what he says. A new commandment I give to you. That you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. Here's the command. This is for us today. This is the bar. We are to love one another. Look at the person beside you. We're to love one another. We're to love one another with the same kind of love that Jesus has loved us with. He doesn't leave it at that though. He says, look, he says, by this, by loving one another, with a radical generosity, by loving one another, all people will know that you are my disciples. If you have love for one another, look what's at stake here. It's the gospel. Our love for one another is supposed to be pointing to the reality of the gospel. So this command is just as much for us here today as it was for the early church. So here's the question. What does it look like for God's people to love one another with radical generosity? Well, here's one way it looks right from our text. It looks like this. It looks like sharing what we have with those in need. Sharing what we have with those in need. Ask yourself, does that describe me? Am I sharing what God has given to me with those in need? When I see a need and I can help, do I meet the need? Because this is what God is calling us to do for the sake of the gospel. And if we actually take a moment just to consider how great the needs are in the church, right here in Oakville, and down the street in Hamilton, and across Ontario, and throughout Canada, and around the world, I, for one, begin to realize that instead of being radically generous, that so often I'm radically selfish, and radically self-focused, and not really considering the needs of others as I ought to. I'm telling you, this is why I so desperately need grace. This is why we so desperately need grace. Because loving one another with a radical generosity, the way that God is calling us to, it simply will not happen unless God does it in us by his grace. And so question, if God's grace is our greatest need, and it is, then how do we access that grace? 
What must we do? Is there something that we can do that we would see an outpouring of God's grace upon our lives? We could think of it this way. You and I cannot make a torrential rainstorm happen. That's impossible. But if one is happening, we can go there and we can enter into it and we can get drenched. You and I can't make a hurricane happen. But if you're one of those storm chaser guys, you can get into your truck and chase it down and drive into it and enter into the storm and experience the storm's power. Well, likewise, you and I can't make the grace of God happen. God pours out grace wherever and whenever he wants, and he is bound by nothing. You and I cannot make God pour out his grace, but, but, you and I can go where God says he will pour out his grace, and we can put ourselves in the way of it. Consider Zacchaeus. Remember Zacchaeus? Let's have a look at Zacchaeus in Luke 19. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus, He was a chief tax collector, and he was rich, and he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. Oh, poor guy, small in stature. I wonder what that's like, huh? All right, all right. What? Okay, next slide, next slide. Okay, here we go. So he ran on ahead, and he climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. Huh? Huh? And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up. And said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. Do you see what Zacchaeus did? He put himself in the way of grace. He put himself in the way of grace. He saw, he knew the path that Jesus was going to be coming down, and so he got in the way. He put himself in the way of grace. And sometimes when we think about the great grace that was poured out on the early church. Sometimes we have this idea that they were just kind of like really passive and not really doing anything, just kind of sitting out on the couch and then God came along and poured out grace upon them. He could have done that, but that's not what happened. The early church was not passive. Rather, they were putting themselves in the way of grace by devoting themselves to the means that God uses to pour out grace. They devoted themselves to the means that God uses to pour out grace. Here's what I mean, up on the screen, Acts chapter 2 from a few weeks ago. And they devoted themselves. They were all about this. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, that's the word of God, and to fellowship, and to the breaking of bread, that's the Lord's Supper, and to the prayers. They weren't passive. They were devoting themselves to the word of God, to fellowship, to the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. They devoted themselves to these things. And they devoted themselves to these things because these are the ordinary, everyday means that God uses to pour out grace on his church. David Mathis, in his book, Habits of Grace, he says this up on the screen. He says, The grace that sends our roots deepest truly grows us up in Christ and produces lasting spiritual maturity streams from the ordinary and unspectacular paths of fellowship, prayer, and Bible intake in its many forms. Love that. So true. It's so true. So here's the question for each one of us right now. Ask yourself, am I more like Zacchaeus, willing to do whatever it takes to get in the way of grace? Or am I like everyone else who was in the crowd, who was kind of standing back and just content with watching Jesus pass by at a distance? 
Because in so many of, of our lives, we say, we say, where's the love? And where's the joy? And where's the peace? Where's the patience? Where's the kindness and the goodness and the faithfulness? Where's the gentleness? Where's the self-control I so long for in my life? Why am I so prone to this selfishness? Why do I lack joy? Why do I lack peace? Why do I lack patience? And so often, here's why. It's because we're not getting in the way of grace by neglecting the ordinary means of grace that God has given to us, being in his word and being a people who pray and being a people who are in fellowship with one another. And by neglecting the ordinary means of grace, you and I can deprive ourselves of what we need the most, which is grace. So church, are we willing are we willing to allow grace to wash over us by setting time aside every day to open up the Bible, to read the word of God, that God would transform us more and more into a people who love one another with a radical generosity? Are we willing? Are we willing to get in the way of grace? Are we, are we willing to allow grace to wash over us by setting time aside every day to pray, to come before the Lord, to go to the throne of grace, that we would receive grace? to come before the Lord so we can adore him and confess our sins to him and thank him and ask him to transform us more and more into a people who love one another with radical generosity. Are we willing? Are we willing to put ourselves in the way of grace? Are we willing to allow grace to wash over us by pursuing fellowship in this church, in this body, in community, to have real relationships, real relationships, where we really know people and, and we're really able to encourage people and be encouraged. Are we willing to put ourselves in the way of grace? Am I willing? Are you willing? Are we willing to put ourselves in the way of grace? Because our greatest need, both yours and mine, right now, right now in our lives, is a great outpouring of the grace of God. Because when God pours out grace upon his church, here's what happens. God's people love one another with radical beautiful, supernatural generosity. But not only that, not only that, because when God pours out grace upon his church, God's people also love one another with this, with sacrificial giving. That's point number two. God's people love one another with sacrificial giving. Sacrificial giving. Have a look now at verse 34. Verse 34, notice. There was not a needy person among them, so in a group of 10,000 people, there were no needs, not a single need. 10,000 people, how is that even possible? Well, look again at verse 34. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. So this is next level love. Because there's a difference between sharing and selling, right? We share something, chances are probably you're going to get it back. Probably. If you sell something, it's gone. It's gone. And notice in verse 34 it says, For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them. So here's what this doesn't mean, okay? It doesn't mean that every single person that owned a property and owned a house sold all of it. It doesn't mean that. Because in the book of Acts, we see that people met in houses, they ate in houses, so it doesn't mean that. But it does mean this, that some of them probably sold all of their properties, while others may have sold some of their properties, but the result 
was that there wasn't a single needy person in the entire church. All 10,000 people had all of their needs met because of the sacrificial giving of God's people. And this sacrificial giving, it wasn't like forced somehow, like no one was forcing anyone to do anything. The sacrificial giving, people weren't guilted into it. No one was being guilted into doing anything. So why did they do it? Here's why. Here's why. Because great grace was upon them all, and it changed their hearts. So that now in their hearts, they have a new treasure. They have a better treasure. They have a more satisfying treasure than their properties. Because God is their treasure. And his love for God has swept through their hearts. It smashed down strongholds of selfishness and smashed down strongholds of idolatry. And God's people were liberated to sell their houses and to sell their properties because their hearts were filled with love for God and love for one another instead of love for houses and properties. And here's a beautiful example of this. Have a look now at verse 36. Verse 36. Thus, Joseph who was called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So here we are introduced to Joseph, who apparently stood out among the 10,000 people as a man who was especially gifted at coming alongside people and imparting to them massive doses of encouragement. So much so that the apostles stopped calling him by his name and they started calling him by a nickname they gave him, which is Barnabas, the son of encouragement. Now, how encouraging a person do you need to be for the apostles, the apostles, to nickname you the son of encouragement? I mean, here the apostles are. They have the most encouraging message in the universe. The most encouraging message of all time, that God has made a way so that sinners can be rescued from hell and rescued to God, and they get together and they're like, wow, look at that guy. He's super encouraging. It's incredible. It's incredible. And why are they doing that? Why are they even bothering to do that? Well, here's why. Because they are choosing to point out the grace of God in him. They're not saying, hey, Joseph, man, you are amazing. You are awesome. They're not saying that. They're saying, hey, Joseph, Joseph, the grace of God in you is amazing. And he is awesome. So two applications for us. Uh, here's the first one. Here's the first question. Do you regularly point out evidences of grace in other people? Does that describe you? Do you regularly come alongside other people and just be like, man, I just see God at work in you. So encouraged. I, mean, I just see God in you. Does that describe you. When's the last time you came alongside someone and told them how you saw God working in their life? What if this week, each one of us, each one of us was intentional about coming alongside even just one person, one person, and encouraging them by pointing out evidences of grace in their lives. 1 Thessalonians 5.11 tells us to encourage one another and to build one another up. What a blessing for our church it would be if we all pointed out evidences of grace in one another this week. Listen, because so many of us here this morning are in desperate need of encouragement. So many of us here this morning are in desperate need of encouragement to have someone come alongside and say, man, 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 I know, I know that I see God at work in you. Yeah, I just see, I see the Lord working in your life. Who can you encourage this week? 
Who can you encourage by pointing out evidences of grace in their lives? Who can you encourage? Second question, ask yourself this. Am I sacrificially giving for the advancement of the kingdom and for meeting the needs of God's people? Am I sacrificially giving for the advancement of the kingdom and for meeting the needs of God's people? Am I doing that? Ask yourself, ask yourself, am I seeking joy in the accumulation of stuff for myself? Or am I seeking joy in sacrificially giving for the advancement of the kingdom and for the meeting of the needs of God's people? Again, ask yourself, is my giving truly sacrificial? Is my giving truly sacrificial? Am I giving to the point where I can feel it? And at times it's kind of like, hey, that kind of hurts a little bit. Is my giving sacrificial? And if so, is my giving also joyful? And maybe you think, well, how does that work? How can giving ever be joyful? Here's how. By God's grace. By God's grace. Again, the grace that flows to us through the ordinary means of grace by being in the word of God through prayer and through fellowship. Because when God pours out his grace and love for God fills the heart, it liberates us to sacrificially give and it liberates us to to joyfully give because we love God and his people more than money. And so we want to give because we want to see God's kingdom advance. And we want to give because we want others to discover the same love and the same joy that we have in Jesus Christ. And so we have joy in giving because there's nothing more exciting than to be part of other people coming to know the Lord Jesus Christ. There's simply nothing more exciting than laboring for other people's joy in God. Nothing. There's nothing more exciting than laboring for other people's joy in God. And this is what the grace of God does in us. It produces in us a radical generosity and sacrificial giving because we love God and because we have joy in God and therefore we want to see others love God and others have joy in God as well. Therefore, our greatest need in our lives, in our day, in our church is this, a great outpouring of grace. A great outpouring of grace that transforms us more and more into a people that love one another with a radical generosity and with sacrificial giving for the sake of the gospel and for the joy of other people in God.